0: Even long weekends are short, so why spend a second of this one on a drink run? Instead, get drinks delivered right to your door with Drizzly. Drizzly is the easiest way to find the best prices on beer, wine, and spirits, so you can get back to lighting those totally legal fireworks. Download the app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y ycom today. Because the long weekend will be over before this ad is. Must be 21+, plus. not available in all locations.
1: What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the New Evangelicals Podcast. Great to have you here. Um, all right, I wanted—I've been trying to do a little more podcasting because so much is happening in our world that involves the work that we do, and sometimes you just need longer-form conversations. So, I was honored and privileged to have Rachel Lazar. Join us on the show. Rachel and her team, Americans United, actually litigate at the Supreme Court. And they just litigated in the case Kennedy versus Bremerton School District about a coach who was praying with students on the 50-yard line. The Supreme Court did not side in their favor, but I brought her on to talk about what is all what is happening at the Supreme Court. I'm sure if you're listening to the news, you're hearing things like this is unprecedented, the court is going back on precedent. This is historical. What does that mean? And also how How does a case even get to the Supreme Court? Rachel breaks all that down and explains to us why what's happening now really matters. This is a very important conversation if you are tapped into the work that we do because we have to be honest and transparent about who is fueling these decisions that are really taking rights away from other people while privileging specifically white conservative evangelicalism. I mean, I hate to put it that bluntly, but that's just the facts of the matter. So buckle up, this is a must-listen-to episode. That being said, of course, thank you for all the support and all the love from the community here. If you want to support the work that we do, you can go to the link in our bio and you can donate. We are a non-profit organization, so all donations are tax deductible. And don't forget, we are partnering with Mad Priest Coffee. So if you go to madpriestcoffee.com, you can get 20% off your offer by putting in TNE20 at checkout. Mad Priest Coffee is amazing. Their branding is great. They, They are right on point when it comes to just poking some fun at our own evangelical heritage and just how we grew up. My favorite blend, personally, is the Dark Knight of the Soul blend, so I recommend picking it up and getting yourself some coffee. All right, friends, without further ado, here is my interview with Rachel. I hope you enjoy it. Well, Rachel Lazar, it is great to have you with us. I got to be honest, I I didn't make the connection right away that you were the person who actually uh, litigated for Bremerton School District in a Supreme Court case. So I'm honored to have you talking to us in our community. Thank you so much for making time.
0: Absolutely. And just to, to clarify, Richard Katsky from our office, who's our legal director, he's the one who actually argued before the court. He did a stellar job, even though we lost, but he convinced three justices, full full hook and sinker. Um, but yes, I am the president of Americans United, actually the first female and the first non-Christian president in our 75 years, interestingly. Um, and we are evolving. We are wow. all evolving. Yeah.
1: Wow. Okay. That's awesome. Those are some yeah, uh, some thanks. precedents, right? I mean, those those are are that's great. That's awesome to right. hear. So let thanks. me just start here, just so the the community can kind of get to know you just for a minute. What got you to where you are now? Like, and, and what do you actually do for Americans United?
0: That's a great question, and I I'm going to try to give a short and simple <laughs> answer. I mean, Fair I think. Enough. The short answer, like the too long, don't read answer is I've dedicated my whole career to trying to make the country more inclusive. Like that's what gets me up in the morning. That's where my heart gets pulled. And that's what I love to do. So that is what church state separation is about. It's about freedom for all of us. So it's about equality, really, at its heart. We like to say it's about freedom without favor and equality without exception. Mm -hmm. And that's just in line with everything I've done. The longer answer would just be, I've worked in my career a lot on reproductive freedom and mm. religious freedom is reproductive freedom. We can get into that. Yeah. Um, I've devoted a lot of my career into that space. And I've also worked um, a lot in the religion community, which has been interesting because I grew up as a reformed Jew and I went to Sunday school and I was, uh, it's called B'nai but because I have a twin brother and I was confirmed and I've raised my kids in Judaism, but I'm not Super duper religious. I'm, you know, but I have a very strong religious identity. But I have spent a surprising amount of my career working with and in the faith community, organizing mm-hmm. the faith community to advance a more inclusive society. I've worked for the Reform Jewish Movement Social Justice Office, doing a lot of interfaith work. And one of my favorite projects that I did, which fell into my lap, it was quite unusual, was a project that we we called "Come Let Us Reason Together" after Isaiah 118. and it was about finding shared values between white evangelical Christians and progressives on abortion, LGBTQ, and some of the most divisive issues of our time.
1: Wow! And that
0: was that was really, I think, one of the my favorite projects that I've ever done. Of course, it was back in 2008, so the times were different.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask. I'm like, man, if that happened now, I don't, I don't, I don't have like any. I don't even know where to start with that kind of conversation. Yeah. So, wow, that's fascinating. Okay, yeah. so obviously, you know, I, I, I talked to Andrew Seidel, who I know, who's been on the, on the podcast before. He's great, by the way. I love him. And Thanks. I reached out yeah. and said, hey. Great hire for us. Great
0: hire for, <laughs> for us. For sure. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. I, I read his book. I'm looking forward to reading his next one. And I I, I asked him uh, the other day, I emailed him and said, hey, do you want to come on and talk about what has happened at the Supreme Court? And he goes, I'll do you one better. I'll, get, I'll, I'll ask Aww. if Rachel can come on. So I'm like, this is wonderful. So obviously, we had at least in my view, two major I guess landmark cases is, is the phrasing to use here. Um there was um uh, Kennedy versus Bremerton School District and then Dobbs versus Jackson's women's health. I know that, that- They're they're their own cases with their own focuses, but they really overlap in the work that we do because in my view, I would argue that really conservative evangelicalism and Christian nationalism are the two forces that got those cases even before a Supreme Court that was also highly, I guess the term is stacked, I don't know, but in the favor of that perspective. I would like to start with maybe the Kennedy case first and kind of get your thoughts on it. Maybe ask some, some questions about the legality of like, how does this work, how do cases, even get to the Supreme Court. And then if we have time, which I know is, we might not have time, but I hope we do. I really want to get into Dobbs versus Jackson, because That's also a very important case that I think also needs to be discussed. So are, are, are you yeah. cool with that?
0: Uh, absolutely.
1: Great. So here's here's what I understand in a nutshell about the Bremerton or Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. And tell me what I don't get correct. I'm um, under the impression that a high school football coach was mm-hmm. praying after games at the 50 yard line, potentially with students at times. I've seen the videos. I've seen the pictures. Yep. They um, and the school district said, "Hey, you can't do that because you're wearing our uniform. We're a public school. Separation of church and state." He's and they, and they also said, we'll, "We'll we'll try and accommodate. We can give you a private place." to pray. Of course, you can pray in your head. You could could probably pray on the sideline, I'm assuming, but you can't run out in the 50-yard line with students and pray. It's not a good look. It, It violates our constitution, whatever. And then he goes, no. I'm not gonna do that. Um, I refuse to do that. And then they go, okay, we have to place you on paid administrative leave to figure this out. And then the following year, he did not renew his contract. And then he sued and he lost in all the lower courts until a larger group, I forgot the name of the group who represented him. First Liberty. Yes, picked up the case and brought it to the Supreme Court. And then they sided with the coach. How'd I do?
0: You did great. A plus plus. A All plus, right.
1: plus. Yeah. <laughs> well done. Okay. So that's the case. So you, um, you and your team were obviously representing Bremerton school district. Walk me through this. First off, let's just start here on the legality of the situation. How does a case even get to the Supreme court? Like how does some guy from, from some town and you know, wherever uh, high school, football, high school football coach get to the Supreme court of the United States?
0: So he files a lawsuit, right? And he has to claim that there was some harm that was done to him. He has to have standing before the court to be able to bring the case. Um, court hears the case. If he's not at the district court level, if he's unhappy with it, he appeals, um, you know, and 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 the appellate court rules on the case. He can ask for on uh, en banc review, which is he can then ask for a review by the entire appellate court of the decision that came down from three appellate judges, um, they can grant that or not. They can review like that or not. And then in the end, he, it, you can appeal it to the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court takes like fewer than 100 cases a year. Right. So it's it, it's really four justices on the Supreme Court have to vote to take the case. And obviously here where we have six, we're in trouble in terms mm. of the type of cases that we're trying to keep away from the court.
1: So, okay. One more question. What is, you said, um, the appellate court or judges, what, what, what is that? What does that mean? Appellate? Yeah.
0: So, um, so that's when, um, you lose a case sort of, uh, on sort of at the district court level, it can be appealed to the appellate court level and they will, um, give it another hard look. Um, they usually are accepting the facts as they were presented at the district court level, but they get to, you know, they're like the, you know, in the levels of sophistication or hierarchy, yeah. they're the next step up towards the Supreme Court, and they get to sort of rule on whether the district court was right or wrong. And not all many of those decisions at the appellate court level never reach the Supreme Court like that's it like they make the, the final law.
1: Are they a federal court? Like 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 do they oversee cases from all over the country or or is it on a state by state basis? These Oh yes.
0: Articles? Well this was a this was a case that was brought under the free exercise clause of the federal constitution. So this case was actually brought in federal court. And oh. so I am talking now, but there is a whole state court system too. But I am talking about the the federal courts right now.
1: It's really amazing because I, I think a lot of people um don't know how to ask those questions because honestly I get confused. I'm like, okay, like there's, there's, there's my, my, my local town court. If I have a parking ticket, right. I can appeal. And then like, but there's also a federal court system as well. So there's really two different court systems in America. Is that what you're saying? A local or state level one, then also a federal court system.
0: Right. There's military tribunals. I mean, there are some others as well, but yes, like generally speaking, you know, standardly you're deciding kind of at what level you want to bring a case. And it depends on whether you have a federal question in part and whether um, it's something that sort of uh, is multi-state, sometimes that can put mm-hmm. it before um, the federal court. So there's various huh. things to consider. there's also strategic decisions, right? Like right now, some of the cases that we want to bring, we would rather bring at the state court level because we don't want to see them go all the way to the the Supreme Court. You still, there are some cases where the Supreme Court does still have final review over a state Supreme Court, but not always.
1: Hmm. Okay, so you mentioned that that um, the Supreme Court picks the cases that they want to hear. <coughs> excuse me, on a, a a four or a more vote is that correct? Yep. And so because of how the court is currently positioned as far as, you know, how they swing from conservative to more liberal right now, what, what I hear you trying to say is that is, is that the court has the option to pick up really conservative or I would say even more like evangelical type causes um, in front of them that, 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 that we know they would probably side in the case of the I guess the plaintiff. Is that the right legal term? You know, is, yeah. is that is that what you're saying right now?
0: Yeah, the petitioner at that level, the petitioner. petitioner. by the time you make it up there. And yes, basically, they have the right to choose their own agenda. And normally that agenda has been driven by where there's a, a split in the way the appellate courts have come down or something that's unresolved. But what we're seeing in these cases is they're picking up cases where they're taking the opportunity to overrule decades of precedent. precedent. Um, Decades of, of past law that's been supported by conservative and liberal justices alike, which is very unusual.
1: Okay, so I'm going to preface by saying, um, to quote Michael Scott, I'm going to ask that going, that from here on out, you explain it to me like I'm five years old. Okay, we'll start with that. Um, so you, I've heard a lot of this term in the news, right? This is decades of precedent being overturned. Let's start with Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. And again, just to be transparent, I grew up in evangelical circles, right? So I still keep tabs on those people. And yep. this case was positioned as, oh, a high school coach was yep. fired for praying. All right. Now, of course, yeah. once you watch, even watch one news piece or read an article, it's evident there's so much more happening. But a lot of conservatives, uh, mainly evangelicals, have this idea in their head that really people like yourself and organizations like yourself just want to get God out of the country and destroy Christianity. Right. Which exactly. I mean, that's that's what I grew up being taught. So so in the case of 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 this. Supreme Court case. Why was it so unprecedented for the Supreme Court to rule that the way that they did? If the idea is, well, look, this person got fired just for praying. He has free speech. You know, it's First Amendment, religious freedom, etc. What are your thoughts on that? Those are my thoughts. On it. Oh, yeah. The floor no, is yours. Really,
0: okay, <laughs> my thoughts on it is that are that there are decades of precedent where the Supreme Court has ruled worrying about students' religious freedom, where the court has recognized that students are impressionable, that students are sort of hostage to public school officials. They have to report to school right. and where they've been concerned about protecting the religious freedom of students and their families. And those cases date way back to the 1960s. There was a case in 1962 called Angle versus Vitali, where the court struck down government-sponsored prayers in public schools. Um, And there, the, the justice who wrote for the court, Justice Black, he wrote, when the power, prestige and financial support of government is placed behind a particular religious belief, the indirect coercive pressure upon religious minorities to conform to the prevailing official Officially approved religion is plain. Hmm. So here, you know, the court was worrying in particular about religious minorities um, and worrying about students, you know, who were religious minorities and 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 preventing government sponsored prayers because public schools are agents of the state. You know, officials there are agents of the state. That is the government speaking, right? right. When they're yeah. coercing or pressuring students to pray. Then there was a case in 1992. And it was called Lee versus Weissman. And it was about prayers at graduation ceremonies. Um, and, and there the court said that, that those types of prayers, like at, at you know a graduation or other official public school events, were out of bounds constitutionally. And again, the majority opinion was considering both the government's actions and the dilemma of non-consenting students. And here's another quote from that decision. Sure. The undeniable fact is that the school district supervision and control of a high school graduation ceremony places public pressure as well as peer pressure on attending students to stand as a group or at least maintain respectful silence during the invocation um, and benediction. That This pressure, though subtle and indirect, can be as real as any overt compulsion. Mm -hmm. And there, I think it's really significant. I mean, one of the questions is, you know, was this case was Lee versus Weissman overruled and it wasn't overruled. I mean, the court didn't say we're now allowing for, you know, at a school graduation there to be a pastor who prays with all the kids. Like the the court didn't say that, but the court, in my view, did overrule part of that case. And, and, and this is how, because that case recognized how peer pressure and how social pressures can be, can be created and they can operate as as seriously as sort of, um, as, as more official sort of, uh, more direct pressure. And I think that's what was happening, you know, in a case like this, where a football coach who only has access to those students and the field at that time, because he is an agent of the state right. is conducting prayer at the 50 yard line, directly following the handshake, directly following a game at the time of the motivational speech that yes, that there's so many points of pressure in that, that the coach holds so many benefits that players want, whether it's access to playing time or scholarships that they need the recommendation for getting into college. Right. Um, And that they feel pressure to feel part of the team. So when their peers are joining in, that may be part of the majority religion that they, that they feel so, I mean, think of these are teenagers, that they feel so much pressure and peer pressure as well to join in the, the court in Lee versus Weissman realized that is part of pressure and coercion, you know, and the court in, in the Kennedy v. Bremerton decision basically said there were some really insulting quotes actually in the majority opinion that Gorsuch wrote, Justice Gorsuch, which were like, these kids are adults, they have the maturity to not not have to go along to get along. And it's like, you know, we even had psychologists who submitted, not we, but psychologists on our side submitted friend-of-the-court briefs to the Supreme Court to say. Reminder, this is how the adolescent brain operates and adolescents are really prone to want to feel to peer pressure and adolescents. I mean, I, it's like a joke that you even have to say that, right? It's like, yeah, you know, yeah.
1: If, yeah. Even myself, so. like that's the first thing I thought of even before you said that. Is like, well, if I am sixteen or seventeen in high school, of course you think that you're a big deal when you're a junior or a senior. You know, I totally understand that, totally, oh, right? And then you have your friends who maybe you don't believe how they do, but they're in these prayer things after games. You want to be part of the team. You want to make sure you have play time, etc. Totally. I can totally understand because I was a teenager once the need to just kind of play along, right, to to bow your head, close your eyes, because you want to be part of the group. I, I don't, and I, I, I'm someone who's very committed to Jesus. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm right. not, I'm not, not a Christian. I, I totally understand why it's inappropriate for a coach who might be a Christian to lead a team. Not, it's, it's not, a, it's not a religious event. You're, you're not at church. It's not a private school. You're in a public school. But for some reason, the justices said, what, what, "What did they say? Like, what, what was the majority opinion's reasoning for this? Is fine. No big deal. It's all good. Like, what was it?"
0: So. In a nutshell, they turned freedom, religious freedom into favoritism. And, you know, but explaining kind of legally how they did it, for one, they, yeah. they claimed that he wasn't operating in his public official role, which is just absurd. They claim that, like, this is no different from him texting his wife on his cell phone for a minute when he's on the job. Um, and you know, that is absurd because again, I mean, part of his actual official job description that's in the record was to give motive, to be motivational. So this is what he was doing after the handshake at the 50 yard line, when those kids feel very obligated to like report to the huddle, which is why, you know, you referenced, you know, that you've seen the pictures the pictures were so important in this case, and I'm holding one up to you now. I know the listeners can't see it, but, yep. you know, what the picture shows a coach holding up a helmet encircled by students, you know, at the 50 yard line, this is a, this is, again, he wouldn't have had access to the, that field at that time and place had he not been a public school official. Right. And, you know, and I think that, you know, as the, as the dissent said, like the context really matters, for what was going on, you know? So anyway, what you're back to, what did, what did they say? You know, you asked, what did the majority opinion say? So they said he wasn't even operating in his public official role, which brings us to having to balance kind of the government's needs against the coach's needs. And basically they, they went with the, you know, they said the free exercise of the coach is what prevails. They ignored the student's, religious freedom. I mean, where was their concern for the atheist student that's desperate to feel part of the team? Where was their concern for the Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist student that wanted to be able to, to play and have playtime? Where was the concern for the Christian student that believed in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, that you shouldn't pray ostentatiously, or that was concerned for his or his neighbor's religious freedom and didn't want to pray and, and also didn't want to sort of be ostracized or suffer the consequences. It was nowhere, nowhere in this opinion. Mm. And instead the court went with something truly concerning and every listener out there that cares about our country continuing to progress, to progress towards our promises of, re- of freedom and equality for all should be gravely concerned they, The court is now officially substituting for formal tests. There was a test called the Lemon Test. There was the endorsement test. We can talk about those. They, they basically dismissed these former tests for something that isn't even a test, Tim. It's retrogressive politics, which is what's deeply rooted in history. That's the test they're going for. What's the deeply rooted in history and tradition test? And we can see this playing out in the Dobbs abortion decision. It's a very subjective test that the court is basically applying to be able to produce the ends that they want. But also, if you think about what's deeply rooted in history in our country, it's it's white, Christian, male, rich, rich, white, Christian, male privilege and nothing else. No one else wins in that system. And we've evolved right. so far as a society. And every time we've evolved, we've expanded the rights of others. We've opened the tent. We've, we've progressed towards being our better angels. And yeah. now we are going, this is a prescription to go so far backwards and everyone should be so concerned about what's coming, not just this, but what's coming.
1: Okay. Yeah. Let's pause here and let's break down. You, you mentioned a lemon test and then, you know, moving from that to what's deeply rooted in tradition and history test. What is a test? And, and and I guess what I'm assuming you're going to say is something like how the justices, you know, verify their decision in some kind of way, shape or form. Like, like what, what, what are they looking at? So what is the lemon test? And then why is that a huge deal now? You know, yeah. that maybe they're not using that anymore in, in these cases. So the,
0: so the idea of, of precedent, right? And of yeah. these tests that the court applies dependably okay. is that like all of us as a society can know when we're basically operating legally or illegally. Mm. I mean, we, we need to be able to, have certain behaviors that we can rely on that won't bring us to court, you know, or know when we are going to go to court because we're violating the law. And it sort of allows us, if you think about it, to have security, like in our actions. I mean, think about school districts around the country that need to be able to tell their employees what's okay and what's not okay and need to be able to know when they can intervene, you know, and, and, and when they really can't. You know, and so th- that, that's sort of the particulars here that's at risk, right, um, among other things. And also teachers and coaches need to know what's allowable behavior and what's not allowable behavior. And a lot of what that comes from, I mean, we have laws that we pass in Congress um, and then we have the court, you know, which makes its own law. Right. And the court gets to in our in our system of government it's the Supreme Court that ultimately has the final say on what our constitution means. Mm. You know, and so they get to say a law is in bounds or out of bounds, or they get to sort of interpret ultimately, you know, what our what our country's Bible, mm. right? Our constitution, our secular Bible says about what's okay and not okay. And mm-hmm. so the the court creates tests that people can rely on, and that they 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 give like an indication of how the court is going to analyze what's okay and what's not, because they can't rule on every detail of a situation that might come before them. So these tests are what give contours to what's okay and not okay. Does that make sense?
1: I think I'm following so far. Yeah. So I want to kind of repeat it back to you. What What I hear you saying is that really, you know, if, if Congress makes laws, um, they, they they still need parameters on what laws they can make and the Supreme Court looks at the Constitution and kind of gives the country the parameters for like what is an inbound law right and what's not an in, inbound law so like you know for According example the if, right so if Congress wanted to federalize you know um, uh, for example morning prayer from by the Christian God in every public school the, the Supreme Court in theory should say no that's unconstitutional that's kind of the idea that we're talking about here right?
0: Yeah. And I'll add one. It is very much. And I'll add one more layer to that, which is that, you know, we are a government of checks and balances. Yeah. Right. Right. We we, let's let's take ourselves back to seventh grade history, which, you know, may or may not have been fun. Wasn't so fun for me. But anyway, there is, you know, so there's the executive branch and, and, and the legislative branch and the judicial branch. Right. And these are like the three legs of the stool of our democracy. Right. And so what the judicial branch does when they're at their best is protect the, the vulnerable, mm. right? To, to protect the rights of individuals who may not have power, right? I mean, and the system really relies on it to do that because our constitution and our bill of rights, they're, they're, they're so vital to like the rights of, of, of those of us who, who aren't in the majority. And right. by the way, so many of us in different aspects of our person, personhood aren't in the majority and mm. in other aspects are right it's like we are complex beings right like i am jewish so in that part i'm very much in the minority but i'm white so i'm very much in the majority and i'm a woman that puts me a little at an advantage disadvantage again you know and and so that's kind of how we all are we rely on the court to protect the vulnerable when it's at its best and this court is protecting the interests of of those who hold power Mm. right so they're putting the interest of a football coach who has power over these students, right, above the interest of teenagers, of children, really, right, right. who are still – who are at the whim of the public school and of their coach.
1: Mm-hmm. So so the term lemon test, that's not like an official test that they have where they're like, okay, uh, check out my – this is the lemon test here and we'll check off the boxes. Are you, are you saying it's more of like a mentality of how they – how they determine what's in and what's out. And and they're not doing that right now. Is that what you're saying? So
0: that was a case from back in the, so tests sometimes get named after cases that kind of set forth what the test is. So that was that that was the lemon case that was from back in the early 1970s. And the court came up with a test that basically checked to see if something violated or passed muster under the establishment clause. So that going back to the, the First Amendment has two religion clauses: mm-hmm. the free exercise clause and the establishment clause, which is really like the non-establishment clause, right? Mm-hmm. And the way the dissent in the Kennedy v. Bremerton case described those two clauses, I think, was really helpful. They described the first clause, the free exercise part, as like the promise that the government makes to all of us of, that we can have religious freedom, and then the the um, establishment clause is like the backstop. on on the exercise of religion that says, basically, we all have freedom to believe as we choose, so long as we don't harm others, right? So long as we're not, the government isn't imposing something on others and taking away their rights, right? And that's the backstop. And, And basically, what happened in this case, said the dissent in the Kennedy v. Bremerton case, is the court significantly weakened that backstop, the establishment uh, yeah, clause.
1: I would say um, so. I mean, I'm, right? I'm no legal it, expert, but if, if that's the standard, it's like, well, I can see how a high school football coach doing this totally blows it out of the water.
0: It, it's like a free exercise clause on steroids, mm, you know, right, and, right. Um, and that's what happened. So the lemon test was basically, and I don't, I don't want to take us too far into the weeds, but it's a test that said like, the, the purpose of a policy has to be you know, secular, right? It can't favor or disfavor religion. The effect of a policy can't favor or disfavor religion. And there can't be excessive entanglement of the government with religion. That was the Mm -hmm. test. And these tests are very abstract, but they're abstract for a reason because they need to apply to like a broad host of factual scenarios. And that was the Lemon Test. And honestly, it evolved out of decades of of Supreme Court opinions that sort of were going towards that place. And then out of the Lemon Test came the endorsement test that Justice O'Connor was sort of famous for in the Lynch v. Donnelly case. And um, And the endorsement test is not named after a case. It's named after like what it was it's descriptive and that test basically was the test that was used by the lower courts in the Kennedy mm-hmm. v. Bremerton case and that case says it's another way of interpreting the establishment clause and it set the limits of the establishment clause and it says the government can't endorse religion or you know or non-religion the government can't take a position right. when it comes to you know religion it can't prefer one religion over another and why o'connor was really famous for making clear that 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 creates a system of insiders and outsiders. And that's why, yeah. you know, that's not what America is at its best is supposed right. to stand for or religious freedom, right? It's about equality as much as it's about freedom. Right. And the court basically said, no, we're, we're, we're going to sort of get rid of those tests. And instead we're going to look, look to deeply rooted history mm. and tradition. And a lot of people have asked, well, What about the, like, what if this case had been about a Muslim coach that was trying to impose, you know, Islam on students and the answer, you know, what, what would have happened, you know, and the answer is twofold. One is there would never have been the billion dollar shadow network behind that Muslim coach that there was behind Coach Kennedy. And I mean, five Trump alums organizations. I mean, the, you know, the groups that brought the masterpiece cake shop case, uh, oh, you know, Alliance man. Defending Freedom and the Beckett Fund and the, the guy that wrote the Texas abortion ban and the the Koch brothers and the DeVosses. And I mean, all these folks submitted the friend of the court briefs on the wow. side of Coach Kennedy. So the answer number one is That network wouldn't have been there for the Muslim coach and and would have never gone to the Supreme Court. First Liberty wouldn't have gotten involved. But answer number two is the deeply rooted history and tradition test doesn't bode well for non-Christians, right? Because that is a test that plays into this narrative, really, that we're a Christian nation founded for Christians and that our laws should um, reinforce white Christian privilege, you know, in this country, um, which is basically white Christian nationalism if you
1: think about it. <laughs> yeah, Yes, it is. I mean, that that is the concern that so many of us have because, and I think one of the reasons, and by the way, thank you for sharing all that, because again, I just, you don't hear that in the news, right? It's kind of assumed that you know this. I think a lot of us are like, yeah, we're kind of playing, we're, we're peer pressure to kind of just play along, right? Like, yeah, we know, we're, we understand, but it's important to have some of the more nitty gritty details because we don't know how this stuff works. Like, I'm not in the Supreme Court. I'm not I don't know how this stuff works, you know, I'm focusing on, on, on other things. Um, I I appreciate you saying all this because when we shared this uh, in our stories on Instagram, a lot of people said the same thing. Hey, if this was a a Muslim coach or a Hindu coach, you know, guaranteed would not be a thing. And I agree because, like you said, there is, and I I hate to sound somewhat conspiratorial here because I know how how much I push back on conspiracies for my own people groups, right? But there really is a legitimate shadow network of people that are well-funded, that do not like to be public, that fuel these things, that get these cases heard at the Supreme Court so we, we have to acknowledge that hundred percent it is
0: it is no less than a billion dollars and I and I, I'm also not one that likes to exaggerate and I like to be able to back up what I'm saying with yes. with facts and and reality um and, and you know I'm a lawyer by training and you don't even have to be a lawyer to be that kind of person you are too but here we added up the annual revenue the budgets of all of the groups that submitted their friend of the court briefs on behalf of the coach and it's over a billion dollars. Wow. And the problem is, if you think about it, that side, which is basically the side that is trying to stand athwart. You know, progress and yell stop (laughs) and, you know, like turn back the clock and reinforce existing power structures. That side is so much better funded than those of us who are fighting for the rights of the people. You know, that like Alliance Defending Freedom, which is really one of our greatest opponents of religious freedom. And the sick thing is they claim religious freedom is on their side, twisting it into religious favoritism and religious privilege. They are funded at over $50 million annually. You know, and we are like not like around a fifth of that annual budget, Mm. you know, at Americans United for Separation of Church and State. And that's why we are really trying to grow. And here I promised you I was going to flack at just one point. We need folks to join us at au.org because we have so many plans that we are implementing in order to have a call for a national recommitment to church state separation, because church state separation is the only guarantee of freedom without favor and equality without exception. And it's about religious freedom and it's about reproductive freedom and LGBTQ equality and racial justice and democracy. It's about democracy because there is no America without church-state separation. So please join us at au.org. It's worth it. We are growing our movement and we need to be much, much bigger. We were founded by people of faith we have tons of people of faith with us. And that's why it's so important as well, the work that AU, Americans United, is doing because our country is so divided right now. Yeah. And Americans United is bringing people together.
1: Mm. We are
0: bringing together the religious and the non-religious every day in our briefs, in our cases that we bring before the courts, in our letters to Congress, and our letters to state legislatures. We are fighting in the courts, in Congress, and in the public square for your freedom without favor and equality without exception join us at au.org and please spread our gospel which is church state separation which is the cornerstone of our democracy
1: yeah I, I love that that's great i would definitely encourage the the listeners to go support for sure because you're doing important work i mean listen we often say that christian nationalism hides behind words like freedom but what they really mean is freedom for me and not for thee they they advocate for policies at the expense of their neighbor that's what it comes down to that's how we phrase it you know christian nationalism conservative evangelicalism that's what they do they advocate for policies that privilege them at the expense of everyone else and we see this time and time again because even statistically on a national level both teachers praying with students and um roe v wade um are both uh, well teachers praying with, with students is highly discouraged by the majority of americans and roe v wade is highly supported by the majority of americans unless you're a white evangelical then oh, or or, or or you're labeled very conservative, according to Pew Research. Then it's 6 out of 10 white evangelicals support overturning Roe v. Wade, and it's about 60% of the very conservative, not even conservative, the very conservative, who say... Teachers should pray with students. So these are not even on, on, on a democratic you know let's pull every individual one big mass vote kind of situation. They are not popular opinions, but because of the funding, because of the power that they hold, they are able to get policies in place that now the rest of us have to submit to, regardless of our own religious convictions. Like, and I don't want to speak too much on this because I'm not super knowledgeable, but I'm under the impression that at least in some um, uh, Jewish traditions, right to a abortion is a religious freedom issue. It's not just about a preference. Am I wrong I, on
0: that? No, you're not wrong. I'm Jewish. And, you know, as a Jewish woman, I am actually obligated to have an abortion if my life is at risk. Hmm. Like that is obligated by, um, by Jewish ethical sort of interpretations of, of, of our most holy doctrines. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I used to work for the Reformed Jewish Movement, and we also have many resolutions in support of abortion rights that come out of our religious denomination. So that's why Americans United is actually readying a lawsuit in this space to challenge abortion bans on the grounds of religious freedom. And a lot of people have asked, why is it that there haven't been even more cases that have brought sort of challenges to abortion bans on religious freedom grounds? The answer to that, I think, is because we haven't needed to so much. Mm. Because, you know, this right was found back in 1973, right? It's like, like like before you were born and around when I was born, right? Um, and it was rooted in something that the court called the penumbra of privacy in the Constitution. The scary thing is so many rights are rooted in, in this, what they call it, substantive due process, right? Yeah, I've heard of that term. Yeah. Yeah, and the 14th Amendment. I mean, if you think about what Justice Clarence Thomas listed, he thinks should be on the chopping block in his concurrence. Yeah. He said the quiet thing, right? right. So he talked about three decisions, Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell. Obergefell. And those are decisions that protect your right to sexual intimacy and the privacy of your own home, your right to birth control, even as married people, and your right to marriage equality, if you're part of, if you're, if you're a part of the LGBTQ community, and those rights are also rooted in this penumbra of privacy. So because we have that protection, there haven't been so many challenges. What about under the equal protection part of the constitution? What about under religious freedom? But there's absolutely a religious freedom argument for reproductive freedom because we all operate according to different belief systems, and therefore we need to be able to make decisions about our body according to our belief systems and not someone else's.
1: Yeah. So can you, uh, maybe, I'm not sure how much you know about Dobbs versus Jackson, Women's Health, but can you kind of give, like, what was the case even about that actually led to um, the justices overturning Roe v. Wade? And also, one more subpart to that, I'm under the impression that not all of the majority opinion agree to overturn Roe v. Wade I think like one of them dissented not to is that correct I don't know if I'm if I'm even saying that language correctly but I'm under that impression as well that one of them was like he didn't want to Robert. go that far.
0: Justice Roberts basically said in his concurrence that he he didn't think that we need to overrule Roe in order to uphold the Mississippi 15. It was a challenge to a 15 week abortion ban. Um, and And Justice Roberts was the one who said he didn't think, you know, we needed to go that far. But of course, it really was would have been overruling Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey sort of the, what followed from Roe v. Wade and became also the law of the land, drew the viability line um, for abortion rights um, because 15 weeks, no matter how you cut it, is pre-viability right. in, in, in the abortion context. So, you know, he to me, it was, a look, it, it would have been, been great if the court even would have stopped short of overruling Roe v. Wade in the way it draconianly and dramatically did, but it really would have still been a a dire decrease in reproductive freedom and religious freedom.
1: So I I have you know, like you said, I, I like being as factual and honest as possible. I can tell that you do too, because you don't, we don't want to contribute to like the mass hysteria of things that maybe are over the top because we live in that society, right? I feel like every day I hear about from some, some, I mean, for, for a while it was critical race theory from evangelicals. It was drag queens were grooming children, right? So I, I don't want to participate in the mass hysteria of, oh my gosh. However, I have heard a lot of language of of, of how the court ruled is unprecedented because they're not standing on precedent and that's not normal. Can you break that down? What does that even mean? And is that correct? Like, is this truly a historical moment for the Supreme Court in, in our nation's history or has this happened before? So
0: here's what's historical about it. And that's okay. a good question, Tim. It's not that the Supreme Court has never overruled precedent before they have. Right and 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 the classic case and they insultingly cited it was Mm. Brown versus Board of Education. Right, right. That reverse precedent on Plessy versus Ferguson. Right, separate but equal was no longer permissible. Jim Crow laws,
1: essentially. Right, needed to go away.
0: Right, exactly, exactly, and and you know that Brown versus Board of Education desegregated um, public schools, right? And so that was really a landmark decision where the court reversed precedent. Another decision where the court, you know, reversed uh, 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 sort of what was the law of the land was in Lawrence, where the court said, you know, the right to sexual intimacy in the privacy of your own home was was now a right of the law of the land in the country, right? Yeah. So, but I think what's significant and different about this moment with Dobbs is that every other time the court has overruled decades of precedent, they've expanded rights, right? They've grown rights. Whereas in Dobbs, the court massively restricted rights. And I will tell you, I am a woman and I view this, I'm Gen X, right? Mm -hmm. I view this as the biggest insult to my equality in America that I have ever lived through. And frankly, it's been an emotional time period for me because yeah. I genuinely feel like this Supreme Court is telling women across this country that that, that something that's basic to, to our humanity, not to mention our religious freedom and our health and our lives, which is control over our own bodies, is taken away from us. Right. And that's, that's a huge slap in the face. This is a dramatic constriction of rights. And that is unprecedented.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, listen, I'm, I'm a man, I don't have a uterus, you know, so I know that, that, that this law doesn't affect me directly. However, I have a wife, I have a partner and also in our work, most of the people who engage with us on social media are, are, are women. Um, and you know, the response has just been like, it's been, it's been heartbreaking, frankly, you know, and it's been very interesting because, I feel like you know we've been doing this work for about a year and a half now online. Yeah. And, you know the new evangelicals haven't been around for super long, but I, I I can't say it enough, and the audience knows this. But like many of them who are listening, I grew up so deep in this culture. I grew up in the pro life culture. I marched uh, in D.C. I held up the abortion is murder sign. I mean, I was thirteen. You know, just doing what I was told yeah. to do. I I, I wore the. They used to make a shirt by a group called Rock for Life. It, it was abortion is homicide. I remember. Yeah, that I was that person. Okay, like I, that, was that was Randy
0: me. Brinson's group or no? That wasn't. An, it might
1: have been. I just knew that so. that that the design was cool. It, it was bold and edgy, right? So you, you wore it, um, and so I grew up that way. And then as I. Honestly, one of the things that really changed my mind for the first time, just to be transparent with you, was my wife and I were pregnant with our first, and we went to the, the, the um, to the OBGYN and they do you know the, the the full the full like welcome to being pregnant for the first time kind of spiel, right? And they mentioned that that they do all these different kinds of tests, and if certain tests come back a certain way, the viability of the fetus is like zero outside the womb, right? Um, or it's super low, maybe it's like five or six percent, right. and and she said, and at that point have to make a decision i was like what do you mean oh and that was the first time for me where i go i would much rather my family and i and my medical doctor have the option to make a decision than to be forced to know that my wife has to carry potentially a fetus to full term that is alive but then will not survive outside of the womb right that was like the first moment for me where i go this is way more complicated than what I was taught about it, right as a conservative white evangelical that 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 people out there just want to murder their children essentially is what you're kind of taught right yeah. and so that was one of the beginning moments where I go, wait, no i i me and my family want this decision, or we we, we want the power to make this the, the decision, not the state, not not anyone else and that was right. one of the first moments that woke me up to like how complicated and honestly how potentially heartbreaking right? Um, having an abortion can be because, you know, I mean, who in the third trimester is like, hey, I'm bored. I just want to abort. It's like, no one right. does that. You know, there's, right. it's a heartbreaking, gut-wrenching scenario that now I'm afraid has been robbed by so many um, because of this ruling. Um, anyway, I didn't want to go off that. I, I, I don't want to well, go too I many, think that that's you know.
0: great. And I, I think that, I think, I, th- I just want to comment on what you sure. just said, because I, I think that, when we are part of the part of us that is part of the majority often is oblivious to, to kind of what it's like not to be in that majority. And I also, I also think that it's very human, but it's also keeps us back from, from being our best selves and from honoring the promises of our country to grip hard onto the power that we have for, for when we're in the majority, because it's nice. Like you, you have, what, what is, privilege, it's, it's just pure comparative advantage. And it's very yeah. human to want, I, I get it. I mean, it's, there's a very human side to want that advantage. Sure. And so I think like the combination of obliviousness with, you know, the, the greed really to hold on to advantage is <clears throat> what's driving so much of what we're seeing now. And I think, you know, white Christians stopped being a majority in our country back in 2014. You Know we're still a majority Christian, but we're not even any longer a majority white Christian. Mm. And I think, you know, when we think about the deeply rooted history test, that is just a nod back to when all of the existing power structures had the most power, were at their great the height of their power. And so I think you know, there's just sort of greed, sort of and and fear. Right. That is driving this this desire to, to and, and the agenda now on the Supreme Court, like you said, the agenda on the Supreme Court, because when when President Trump put those three justices on the court and, and you know, and some of them were were done really immorally, in my view, totally. you know, and driven through in the way they were like the, the court became aligned with this Christian nationalist agenda. And it's and it's a sad day in America because Theocracy cannot exist alongside of democracy. It's Uh, impossible.
1: A hundred percent. You know, it's funny. I, um, I remember when, um, whatever the case was that that uh, where the Supreme Court ruled that 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 gay marriage w- was was a right. I remember when that. Had, yeah, okay, thank you, a Burgerfeld. When that happened, you know, again, I, I grew up listening to talk radio. You know, listening to Christian evangelical uh, pundits, and man, this is a radical court. This is just a, a a runaway court. That was like the language that they used, you know. And I remember thinking, like, I don't know, man. Like, I mean, you know, at the time, I wasn't even I wasn't even affirming at the time. I remember thinking like, well, they have a right to live how they want, like, despite whatever I think about it. Like, I was still very much a conservative evangelical thinking this. Like, I don't get it, guys. Like, how is this radical? We live in in, in supposedly a free country. Um, It it makes a lot of sense to me. And now, right, we're seeing what I would argue is a radical, you know, like a court, frankly, making rules and and, and decisions based on, like you said, things that like are not the norm. Uh, And also, like you said, and again, we don't want to be in an unhealthy way, but at the same time, sometimes you have to ring the alarm and say, the the way that they're doing this, and looking back to history, well, look back at history and look who's privileged. I mean, Jim Crow laws were a thing. I mean, I, there's a great book by that I always recommend by uh, by Russell Hawkins called The Bible Told Them So, about about Southern white evangelicals who fought like hell to fight segregation. If that's what we're looking at here, you know, I, I, I am honestly, as a white man, concerned, not only for me, because because I'll, I'll probably be fine, but for everyone else, because this is crazy. Like, if that's if that's what you're looking through, I don't want to sound over the top, but I would not be surprised to start seeing rulings coming through that roll back BIPOC rights as well. I mean, we could be back in, in that situation because we've done it before. Why wouldn't we do it again? It, 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 100%. It, that's the standard.
0: No, 100%. I actually think, White men should be alarmed for so many reasons. Let's talk about white Christian men and why they should be alarmed.
1: Let's do it. So, Already. Okay, so,
0: no, so, so, so number one, first and foremost, white Christian men in this country still count on the fact that we're a democracy, hmm. right? I mean, I think, like, there is a completely fringe number of white Christian men who would say, nope, I'd actually prefer a theocracy, but most white Christian men are very invested in in America and, be, and in our democracy and proud of it. And you cannot, you cannot take an ax to the constitution in the way that we are right now and preserve our democracy. It won't last, right? I mean, people are talking about a civil war. People are talking about our country splitting into half or thirds or, I mean, and, and really, Everything is on the table long term right yeah. now and I and I sadly don't think that we're being alarmist anymore. I, it really troubles me. I mean, you know, I think I'm white, right? And when you grow up sort of white in this country when I did. Okay, not anymore. <laughs> but when I did, like you have the the maybe obliviousness and the luxury of just really believing in the government. Yeah. You know what I mean? I believed in the government even as a Jewish person. Yeah. Like I really but now if you've got the highest core of the, you know, of the highest part of the judicial branch, which is basically undermining what our government is supposed to be about, that puts our entire democracy on shaky ground. That's reason number one for white Christian men to be really concerned. Reason number two is most white Christian men are very intimately attached to women. Hmm. to women on some level, whether it's their daughters, whether it's their partner, whether it's their mom or their aunt or their best friend or whatever. And it's not okay for women not to have the ability to sort of control their lives and be equal participants in society. These are people that they really care about. And by the way, that's why, you know, even in the South, traditionally, when there've been actual ballot initiatives, even on like parental consent for abortion, they haven't always gone through. And it's because when someone gets into the ballot box and they have to pull that lever, well, we don't really pull levers anymore, but you know what I mean? <laughs> Hit that button. <laughs> like, like, and say, no, I actually don't want there to be access. Like, I don't want it, there to be safe and legal access for people in my community. That's actually not what they support. Hmm. I think it's become a proxy for morality. And I think that it's fair that a lot of people have some m- abortion is morally complex. That doesn't mean you can you can agree that there's a moral complexity to abortion and still profoundly believe that the only locus for the decision has to be with a woman and her family and her god if she believes and and her doctor. Like you can believe that at the same time that is totally consistent. Right. Right? But I think today a lot of folks sort of, you know, weren't believing that abortion could become illegal, right? And so they they might be willing to say they that there were, you know, that they support illegality on some level, and as you say, we still have very much of the majority with us. Eighty percent, a recent Gallup poll said, at least mm. some of the time. Wow. But I think that their like morality got mixed into legality. Yeah. But now we are talking about safe and legal access to abortion, and especially for. Those who are more vulnerable and have less access to healthcare in our country, um, you know, who, who are poorer and can't afford to flee their state, who are black and brown, who are disproportionately poor because of our country's history of racism and indigenous folks, LGBTQ folks who have less access to the healthcare system anyway, because of biases and also, you know, economics. So we are talking about really, you know. I'll just use Christian terms, like the least among us in that sense, you know? And, and to me, I mean, from what I know about Christianity, from so many of my Christian friends, it feels anti-Christian what this, what this, you know, religious extremist agenda is pushing for because it's hurting those who are most vulnerable.
1: I mean, listen, you're on the money. um, And this is why we're, we're quite, maybe almost too much sometimes, always trying to bring attention to what's happening because you know we're not talking about the christian tradition in general because there's a lot of streams that are great and healthy we're talking about a very particular one that is is powerful and doing a lot of damage and in my view has hijacked Right, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Unfortunately, you can you can trace these kinds of traditions, right? As we know, back throughout history, so they're still in the Christian house, but they're really in the basement. You know what I mean? And 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 frankly, that's why so many of us we 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 work in this space. It's called the deconstruction space. It's this idea that people are just kind of rethinking things, and most of them have come from white evangelical spaces. And and when we saw the allegiance to Trump and and just other things, you know, the homophobia and 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 the minimization of what happened to George Floyd and Arberry and Brianna Taylor, we started saying, wait, wait, wait. I know that we share the same beliefs and I would assume we would have the same values, but we don't. Like all of a sudden the people that I'm, I'm at church with, I'm like, wait, you think that like George Floyd kind of deserved it? Cause you're, you're tweeting me Candace Owens talking points. I thought we had the same beliefs here and therefore exactly. the same values. Right. But it turns out the values are so different. And so, and so I agree with you. And, and I'm Kind of my, my, my last thought and maybe maybe get your opinion on this before we get ready to close. And again, I just want to say thank you for making the time and to come on and explain this. I, I it's been so helpful just to get like some kind of legal framework in my head to why this is such a historic moment in our country and why we should be motivated, right, to work together to resist this movement because it really isn't about freedom for all. Uh, but my last thought is, you know, I have been thinking about how it is quite um crazy to me that, that we know from data that 80% of white evangelicals voted for Trump in 2016 and in 2020, which is crazy. We know that at one point, three out of five white evangelicals believe that Joe Biden was not the true president based on Trump's lie. We know that Christian nationalism was all over the insurrection. We know that, Chris, that, that right-wing pundits downplayed the whole thing. But when you think about it, it's like, wait a second. One of the most immoral presidents ever elected in history— Put three people on the bench in one of the most unethical ways in his, uh, uh, ways in history, supported by white evangelical Christians, uh, by by the majority of them for sure. He he, especially now with the January sixth hearing coming uh, uh, hearings coming to light, it's evident that he was behind and knew what he was doing with the insurrection. Like it's it's clear as day, right? And so we we have this long history line of like. You know, if this was a Democrat, if this was Obama, you don't think that like that there would be like rioting in the streets by white evangelicals. You don't think that Sean Hannity every day will be hammering this home, but they don't, right? And that's what concerns me. I'm speaking as someone who was in these spaces. The anti-intellectualism, the um, anti-honest, like the 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 dishonest movement I'm seeing in these spaces is what concerns me going forward because people are celebrating Roe v. Wade being overturned as like an answer to prayer. And my concern, to be transparent and honest with you, is that this Mm -hmm. will only reinforce that God is on their side and that they have to fight like hell for the next level of making America, quote unquote, more Christian. And I know that statistically only 20% of Americans identify or, or sympathize with, or I'm sorry, um, push Christian nationalist ideology, but one overlooked thing, just to keep in mind when you're doing your work and for the audience out there, the majority of white evangelicals are at least sympathetic to the causes of Christian nationalism. That's what's scary. They don't call it out in their circles. They don't root it out. It's not on their agenda. They're not concerned about it. They don't care that 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 Lauren Boebert is at a church saying the church has to be in charge of the state. You know, separation of church and state is nonsense. They don't care. They're too busy talking about critical race theory, drag queens, the Buzz Lightyear movie. I'm 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 not kidding you. I've seen pastors tweet about the the the, the lesbian kiss in a, in a damn Buzz Lightyear movie while they're quiet on this and not to rant forgive me for ranting but that's why i'm so concerned about the future of america because this this so-called moderate evangelical thing right is actually highly sympathetic to christian nationalist causes and that's why i'm honestly freaking terrified at the future
0: tim i am so grateful for you and your community and i just want to close by saying we cannot stop hoping and we cannot stop showing up because that's what the opposition is trying to get us to do. If they kill our hope, we don't show up and resist. Right. And then we lose. And I think what's more important than anything is to hold on to that hope, to keep believing in our voices. Look at what Cassidy did yesterday. I mean, in our power to make change, what 25 year old can get up and use her voice and change history, you know, and honestly, in our own ways, You are, look at your voice, is loud and proud for change. And I am so grateful as an American and as the leader of Americans United. And I just want to close- I don't know if we're closing, but I wanted to read this quote by Howard Zinn, who wrote, you know, uh, rewrote sort of our history and mm. a history text about what really happened. Mm. And I think it's so beautiful. And actually, I had noticed that Dahlia Lithwick had, had referenced it in a Slate article that she wrote. And then Andrew Seidel then sent it to me. And I've been reading it to our staff and our membership. And I think it's beautiful. And I think one of the things that we have to do right now is hold on to our hopes so that we continue to act. So can I read it? Go for it. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It is based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. If we remember those times and places, and there are so many where people have behaved magnificently. Mm. This gives us the energy to act and at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. And if we do act in however small a way, we don't have to wait for some grand utopian future. The future is an infinite succession of presence. And to live now as we think human beings should live in defiance of all that is bad around us is itself a marvelous victory. Mm. So I hope that all of our listeners can keep in mind that we are capable of being part of a marvelous victory just by believing in the power of our voices and doing whatever it is that we are uniquely positioned to do in our own spaces and communities to push America towards its promises.
1: I love that. That's great. So I know you gave a shout out for Americans United. Um, I'm going to encourage people to donate and to support. If people can't donate because you know right now inflation's high, times are tough. How else can they can they support you? Um, can they reshare things? Is is there a newsletter they can sign up for? Thank what can you. They do? Yes,
0: yes. Go to au.org and you can pay. You know, I think it's thirty five dollars to join, and you get our magazine every month. But you can also join our take action list. That's readily available on our website at au.org. And you can follow us on social media and share the heck out of us. So we're at Americans United on Instagram, on Twitter. We're on Facebook. Um, We're going to soon be on TikTok. You can follow Andrew Seidel on TikTok if you're not already. I am followable at Rachel... uh, Kay Lazar, I think it is on Twitter. Um, and yeah, we just need everybody to be part of this loud movement to reawaken the country about the need to recommit to church state separation in order pres- to preserve our democracy.
1: Yeah. Well said. Well, thanks again for making time. It's great to have you on. I know that the audience will get so much out of this conversation and please keep in touch. We, we love the work that you do. It's needed now more than ever.
0: Thank you to you and your audience for all you're doing. That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap. And the sound of me not doing dishes. And the sound of me spending more time outside with my family.
1: Easy prep, cook and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that. Now that you've taken on that big job, you shouldn't have to settle for the big box. You've earned a trip to Northern Tool, and we're ready for the details. We know all about the little things that make the biggest difference. Maybe that's why they call us a problem solver's paradise. From pressure washers to power tools, pallet jacks to push carts, Northern Tool and Equipment carries the brands you depend on, like North Star, Dewalt, Milwaukee, and Strongway. We're made for this. Come see us in store or shop online at northerntool.com.